So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was exploring some ancient shepherd caves outside of Bethlehem, kind of an intricate series of, of rooms and tunnels, and I was in complete you know, darkness, but I had my iPhone out, so I was kind of using my flashlight to kind of work my way through. It was a little bit bent over, and I was doing awesome until I dropped my phone. I dropped my phone, and I was suddenly enveloped in complete and utter darkness. And just kind of a physical reaction, you know, my phone dropped, but I stood up, banged my head on the rocks above me, dropped back down to my knees, tried to trace with my fingers to try and find out, you know, exactly where my phone was, had a moment of panic, started crawling forward, thinking, I got to get out of here, and then remembered, I don't know where this tunnel goes, backed up again, finally backed over top of my phone, and I was so unbelievably thankful just when my screen illuminated with a little bit of light. Because I was reminded again, when you're wrapped in darkness, you only want one thing. You want light. We've been doing a series called God Is. It's prompted by a Facebook posting. One weekend we had a snow weekend. I sent out this thing on Facebook. Hey, fill in the blank. God is. And I could not believe some of the responses that I got. I realized that many people have, have kind of a twisted view of who God is. And those responses, coupled with a little quote that I ran into during my quiet time, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, those two things together just got my brain spinning and questioning. Why is it the perspectives on God are so vastly different? How can one person say God is everything and another person say God's nothing? How can somebody say God is gentle and another person at the same time say God is cruel? Well, this weekend, we're going to let God fill in the blank for himself with a powerful statement. Because in scripture, God says God is light. As soon as I quote God and say that God is light, people get all kinds of thoughts in their brains. Okay, If you grew up in church and I say God is light, a little song might pop into your brain, right? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Let's see how churched you were, right? Hide it under a bushel. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know if that's good or tragic. One of the two, all right? If you didn't grow up in church, and I say God is light, you might instantly think that God is this kind of a light, right? That he's the grand interrogator, and that he shows up in your life in the most inopportune times, and he just starts drilling you with questions. Grant Ernest Fishbook, why did you steal that chocolate bar when you were six? Grant Fishbook, why do you drive 56 in a 55? And I say, it's because I'm Canadian and it doesn't matter, all right? <laughs> he says, Grant Ernest Fishbook, why do you watch The Real Housewives of New York City? <laughs> right? This is the picture that some of you get when you hear that God is light. That is not the kind of light that God is talking about in Scripture. In fact, in Scripture, God has a simple definition. Light is illumination that makes sight possible. God loves to bring light and sight to dark and difficult things. I just returned from Israel where my idea about God is light really, really changed. Because this is not what I pictured when I heard the phrase, God is light. Okay? We went to a store in Bethlehem. Our team purchased a number of things, and the owner of that store, who's actually the grandson of the, the man who uh, had a little Bedouin shepherd boy show up in his store one day with a bag full of old leather, turned out to be the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? So this is that guy's grandson. He gave a gift to the pastors because our group went in and, 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 and helped his store significantly by purchasing items. He gave this little oil lamp to me. 
This is a first century oil lamp. Okay? And according to the antiquities piece of certi certif uh, certification that I got along with this oil lamp, it was excavated archaeologically in a little town called Nazareth. So from the first century, it came from the same town where Jesus grew up. And my brain can do all kinds of really cool stuff with that, but we're not going to go there this morning. This is a simple, humble source of light that was common to the people that Jesus knew. So besides the sun, when Jesus said God is light, they would have gotten two pictures. What we see in the sky, very rarely in Whatcom County, and this little oil lamp. Keep that in mind as I read these words from the Bible, 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So here's what we learn. As soon as God says God is light, we learn that light is pure. The Bible says God is light in him. There's no darkness. There's no shadows. There's no secret places. He's just light. Light is used all the way through scripture to speak of the holiness of God. And when John wrote these words, he knew that not only would, would, would Jewish people and, and believing people go, oh, of course God is light. He also knew that Greek thinkers would, would kind of be spurred by that little statement. Because Greek philosophers use exactly the same phrase as a metaphor for higher truth and spiritual discovery. The problem with those ancient Greek philosophers is that instead of embracing the pure light of God, they actually tried to introduce and condone shadows. See, Greek philosophy tried to blend a whole bunch of stuff. Spiritual enlightenment, secret knowledge, mystical experience, and unfortunately what it morphed into was a heresy known as Gnosticism. Okay? Gnostics believed that only the spiritual part of you mattered. The physical part of you, the material part of you, it doesn't matter. So you can do with what yourself, you can do whatever you want to with yourself. Things haven't changed very much, have they, over the centuries? I mean, we live out and see the same ideology today. People call themselves Christians. That's the soul part of them. But what they do with their physical body, oh, that's totally cool. You can do whatever you want to. That's why we hear people saying, oh, I'm a believer, but business is business. I get to conduct myself how I want to in my business world because my business world and my spiritual world are separate. So if you ever hear yourself using language like my spiritual life, my financial life, my personal life, my business life, you need to be very careful because Jesus only sees it as one life and he called you to live that life righteously in the light with him. Light's pure. Secondly, light penetrates darkness and it exposes reality. The Bible says there's no darkness in God, which means this. We can claim we love God all we want to, but if we're walking in darkness, the Bible says you're lying to yourself. Because light and dark don't mix. Verse 6 says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Okay, this is hard stuff. Because that little phrase, do not live out the truth, can also be translated this way. Do not do the truth. Don't actually do it. Okay, so here's a tough thing. You don't do what you don't believe. Let me say that again. You don't do what you don't believe. You can say all you want to. Oh, I believe in biblical stewardship. I believe God's the owner of everything. I believe I'm simply a steward. But if you don't follow how God told you to handle your personal finances, here's the truth, friends. You're lying to yourself. 
You can say that moral purity is amazing, absolutely. But if you're compromising with another person or your computer, you don't really believe that because you only do what you believe. Light shines into those dark corners in our soul. Penetrates darkness, exposes reality. It shines into the dark and embarrassing corners of our lives. And the truth is, that just kind of freaks us out because we've all got stuff that we would rather it just stay hidden. Which is why I'm so glad that God didn't stop talking and John didn't stop writing until verse 7. Verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. I mean, the Bible teaches that light unites. When we walk in the light, when we embrace the light, we shun the darkness and God is there and a relationship is possible. God offers us a light in the midst of our own personal darkness. I mean, has anybody else noticed this? That when you walk into a room and flick on a light, has anyone ever had the darkness win? I mean, has the darkness ever like even put up a scrap? Absolutely not. You turn the light on, what happens? Darkness disappears. And that's exactly what happens inside of our souls. In the light of God's purity and holiness, reality is exposed, sin's exposed, but God offers a relationship. We get exactly what we don't deserve. A relationship that, that over time destroys the darkness in our soul and draws us to the light of Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, When Jesus again spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a powerful statement. I am the light of the world. He's saying that to the Greek philosopher followers. You think you've, no, that's the wrong light. I am the light of the world. There's no other light. It's just I'm the only source. And I got to speak to the man who gave me this oil lamp and As he was kind of describing the process of how this little lamp works and how they used to kind of work with it back in the day. He said a phrase that struck with me. He said, without crushing, there is no light. This little lamp, believe it or not, runs on olive oil. The same stuff that you cook with, all right? It runs on olive oil. And on our trip to Israel, we got to observe a working olive oil press. It was a part of every town Every piece of culture back then because it's very olive driven. All right, let me explain what that means. Olives would be picked every single year and they would put in these mesh bags that had a hole in the top and a hole in the bottom. And then they would stack these mesh bags underneath of an olive press that had an unbelievable amount of weight. And they would use kind of an off-scenting cantilever kind of a contraption to help be able to counterweight it so they could press down and apply pressure. Olives are always pressed three times. The first time the olives are pressed and pressure is applied to them, the oil that comes out of that is known as extra virgin olive oil. That's how it gets its name, okay? It's the first pressing. And that olive oil is reserved for two purposes, light and medicine. It'll heal you or help in the healing process. The second time they apply pressure to it, the oil that comes out is used as food. They would mix it with flour and they would make bread. Anybody making a connection between the bread of life and that just let your imagination run wild, okay? The third time pressure was applied, that oil was also reserved for a specific purpose. They made soap out of it so they could clean themselves, their clothes. Everything revolved around oil. 
And my friend used that phrase, without crushing, there is no light. Without pressure, there is no light. Without the olive actually being brutalized, there is no light. All of a sudden, I realized something. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what Gethsemane means? Olive oil press. Jesus under pressure to the point where he sweats drops of blood. Jesus knew he would become the light of the world, but only through crushing would that light even have an opportunity to shine. That's why the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus said this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Without crushing, there is no light. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and I'm willing to be crushed for you and your sake. So that I can shine the light of God into the dark corners, so that you don't have to live with those secrets anymore. Jesus said he was the light of the world. He also made another statement. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talking and he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. The town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, you have been pronounced as the light of the world. The light of the world, Jesus, resides inside of you and you are to reflect that light and you are participating in the divine illumination of Whatcom County. That's your purpose, that's your goal, that's your life, that's the whole thing. You're here to shine light into darkness because Jesus is reflecting through you. Ah, amen, I got one person with me from the back. God bless you, sister, that's great, all right? So if we have the responsibility of being light, along with that come some demands, okay? Look in your outline. Being light demands illumination. Scripture says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. So we're in Israel, staying in the area of, of Capernaum and Nazareth, around the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Lake of Tiberias. And basically, it, it's like a lake river basin. It's a beautiful lake in the bottom, and then all around it are hills. And at night, it gets really, really dark. And if you want to try and orient yourself, all you need to do is find the city of Sephoris. That's what it's called. Okay? Interesting that the Greek word for light is phos, and they have this little town called Sephorus up on the top of this light. And you can always tell where you are because you look up, and it's the highest peak all the way around the area, and that little town shines and has been shining for centuries. At night, people would take a little tiny, every house had several of these oil lamps burning, and that light would work its way out, and it was like Sephorus was glowing on the horizon. And that's how you always knew where you were, because you could try to hide that city on a hill, but it's impossible because there's just too many little lights shining at exactly the same time. The illumination stands out in stark contrast to the darkness. Earlier in the service, we introduced you to Thomas and Beatrice Amolo. I mean, they are very humble, unassuming people, but I will tell you something about Thomas and Beatrice. They are heroes, modern-day heroes. You think you have a busy life? 
They are pastors, school directors, church planters, orphanage directors, food service coordinators, educators, health professionals, and the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. They work in the Kibera slum, one of the largest slums in the entire world outside of Nairobi, Kenya. I've been there. I've walked through it. it when you walk into that, that area, it, it's overwhelming how many millions of people are packed into that little area. It's a dark, difficult place. But Thomas and Beatrice are shining there. They're bringing hope into that place. I mean, they have over 600 kids in two schools, right? We complain if our classroom size is over 30, right? One teacher to 30. They got 600 kids. And they're it. They're doing the work. They run feeding programs for hundreds of children. They're the light of God in Kibera. And this past week, Pastor Todd and I got an opportunity to sit down with them, talk about them. And I've known Thomas and Beatrice since about 2006 when they showed up. You know how they showed up? God told somebody to give a business card to them. They connected to somebody here at CTK. The business card traveled back over her here. Shirley Storm went on a trip, met these guys and went, wow. And then we met them and we decided we better partner up with these guys. I mean, that's how God just used a business card to connect a friendship over years. And Thomas and Beatrice are in my office, and they open up this, this picture, and I've been studying a city on a hill that just stands out in stark contrast. Can anybody guess which building is the school in Kibera? Bam! Right, there it is! It just stands out in the midst of the darkness. I mean, it's just there. It illuminates the light of God, and not just because it's blue. Because it represents the heart of Jesus in the midst of that city. Thomas and Beatrice would tell you, you're not in Kibera, but your light matters. Their light matters in Kibera because that's where God has placed them. Your light matters here because this is where God has placed you. And sometimes you're just like, I just feel like a little tiny insignificant oil, olive oil lamp. My light doesn't matter. It doesn't make a big difference. Let me give you some good theology. Says who? Who says your light doesn't matter? You put enough lights together, you know what happens? Darkness leaves. That's what happens. This is just a worthless little piece of clay unless it's fulfilling its purpose. And then it becomes unbelievably useful. So if we're the light of the world, we should be illuminating the world around us with the light of God. This is where it gets so practical. Unfortunately, it's almost become a cliche. Everybody remember a couple years ago, everybody was wearing these little black bracelets around their, their wrist with the letters WWJD on them? What would Jesus do, right? Dallas Willard, my favorite theologian, he actually asked a better question. What would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were me? If you're a truck driver, ask yourself. If Jesus drove a truck, what kind of truck driver would he be? Would he be the kind of truck driver that would pull over and help people on the side of the road? Would he be the kind of truck driver that would keep his truck running above the regular standards that everybody else had just because he cared so much and was so passionate about the mission that he'd been placed on where he was told to let his light shine? If Jesus were in middle management, what kind of middle manager would he be? Would he be a part of office gossip? Would he stand and disrespect upper management? 
Or would he be a part of a system trying to bring some kind of good in the little corner that he was placed? If Jesus were a parent, what kind of parent would he be? If Jesus were a young male college student, what kind of young male college student would he be? Would he obsessively play video games and post philosophical thoughts on Facebook and whine about the fact that no girl ever likes me because the only light that ever shines out of him comes in a reflection from the flickering screen of his computer? Can you tell that that's a bit of a hot button for me? If Jesus were me, what kind of pastor would Jesus be? That's a somewhat horrifying thought for me when I look at my week. Where would Jesus go? What would he spend his time doing? Who would he be with? If he were me, what kind of pastor would Jesus be? Being light requires illumination. Secondly, being light requires exposure. I mean, you don't hide the light, right? You're supposed to shine it. The Bible says, you know, what, what, what good would it do to light up a light and to put a cover over top of it? Why, in the, why, why would you light it if you weren't going to actually shine it so that somebody could see? We all know what happens, right? If you, if you put a cover over top of a flame like that and, and it's exposed and then all of a sudden it begins to be deprived of oxygen, what happens to the light? goes out, right? Don't let Satan it out. Remember? Requires exposure. It's been placed there for a godly purpose. I know this is not deep theology, but I'm going to say it anyway. What's the point? To the light of the world, for the love of Jesus, shine. Where God has placed you, it's not insignificant. It's holy righteous shine it when you're shining scripture also says that being light reflects the true light so listen to the word of God again in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify you because you're just an exceptional human being is that what it says not what my Bible says. My Bible says that let your light shine before others so they see, may see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven. When you actually shine the light into the world, there's something that just causes people to, to see what you're doing and then it just bounces their eyes towards heaven. This means when the light of Jesus, the light of the world is reflected in us, the people around us see the light of the world. So we're to shine the light of Jesus. And this is where people get all messed up because they think, well, I've got the light inside of me. So what that means is I'm going to take that light and focus it down into a tiny little spotlight and I'm going to walk around and I'm going to shine it and expose the sin of every other human being in the room. Okay, here's a caution to the light bearers, okay? Jesus slash Father slash Holy Spirit, he's the exposing light not you. God doesn't need your help. The last time I checked, the Godhead is a trinity, not a quartet. Some of you have taken the position of junior Holy Spirit. Resign today. 
God doesn't need your help exposing somebody else's sin. You just work on your own stuff and God will take care of all of the rest. That is not what God needs. What God needs is a group of fearless people who don't try to cover up the light of Christ in their lives, but instead will fearlessly shine by embracing their role as the light of the world. Here's my personal assertion. My life shines the most brightly when I live differently. When I live different than everybody else, when I have different priorities, when I act in a different way, when I choose activities in a different, with a different standard because I want to allow, I don't want any of that darkness to come back in again. I mean, for the love of Jesus, he saved me from it. Why would I want to dance on the edge of it? Living differently is interesting. So a moment happened in Israel that I will never forget. We got up one morning in a part of our itinerary. We were going to go to the upper room where Jesus shared communion for the first time with his disciples, with his closest friends. And we got there, and I, I was a little bummed when the door was locked. So the Pope is on a, getting ready to do a, a trip, a pilgrimage to Israel, and they were getting ready for his arrival, and so they shut down the upper room. Right? You know, and they didn't know we were coming. What was the deal, Right? And I had actually talked to Sam, our guide, ahead of time, and he said, Grant, this is the way it works. And everybody wants to stop in the upper room. They want to do some things there, but you can't. It, it, it's set up, you just got to walk through it, right? So then we got there, and we couldn't even walk through it. I'm a little discouraged. So we end up standing as a group in this little stone courtyard beside the upper room. We can see the modern windows that somebody stuck in the windows at some point. But we're just kind of there. And God taps me on the shoulder and reminds me, in the upper room, not only did he institute communion for the first time, but he did something else. He washed the feet of his disciples. And they all freaked out. They're just like, you don't get to do that to me. And he goes, if, you don't, if I don't, you don't let me do this with you, we, we don't have unity. We're not together. So I figure, well, if you can't break the rules up in the room, you can't say anything about being down here. There was a little stone bench in that courtyard. And I was uh, honored that on this trip to Israel, my mom and my dad got to come. So not planned, didn't tell him, totally freaked him out. But I grabbed my dad's hand and I just said, Dad, would you sit here for a second? Grabbed a bottle of water, pulled off his, his sweaty shoe and his sock and washed his feet. And I learned something again. When you wash somebody's feet, awkward Right? It's awkward. It's humbling. It's godly because the king did it. The creator washed the feet of the created. And it was just it was just a moment, and it just reminded you me one more time of the level to which Jesus stooped. As he embraced the crushing so that he could be the light of the world and so that he could remind us, you are the light of the world too. If you're ever wondering, I don't know how to let my light shine, serve. Just serve somebody. Do something that makes their life a little easier. And God makes you this promise. When you do that, you will not be the center of attention, but any glory that comes your direction will be bounced right to heaven. So this week, here's the challenge. 
The Bible says that we are to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who could not, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant. If you want to let your light shine this week, serve somebody. Serve somebody who's quote-unquote beneath you. Serve somebody who's quote-unquote above you. Just serve. Live your life so that you are never higher than his feet. God says, I promise you, your light will shine. As the servants of God, the light of the world, we believe there's no task too menial for us. We believe there's nothing beneath us. We believe that we will stoop to great levels to help people and assist people. We will defend the truth. We will speak the truth, but we will do it in humility. We will consider others greater than ourselves because that's what Jesus did. He is the light of the world, and we are a mere reflection of him. You know, I was so proud the other day because I heard, a, I heard about something that happened up on Western's campus. So, I mean, I've been the teaching pastor here at CTK for 11 years. But before that, I was actually the young married pastor. Before that, I was the college guy, all right? And so years ago, 14 years ago, I walked up on Western's campus, and I was walking across Red Square one day. And there was a guy standing in Red Square with a great big sign that listed off all of the people that he believes God hates. That's what it says. God hates, and then just a whole list. And he stands there, and he would shout at people and scream at people. And if you tried to engage him in a conversation, he'd pull out a whistle, and he would just blow it until you stopped talking. Some of you know who I'm talking about. You've seen it and experienced it, right? And as believers, there's something in our heart that's just like, no. That's not the Jesus that I love. That's not the Jesus that saved me. That's not his heart. And there's something in us that just kind of boils up. It's just like, oh. Well, I know a, a group of guys who are kind of somewhat connected around here, connected in Ecclesia. And these guys were thinking, what can we do to try and respond to that happening in the center of our campus? If it was me, back when I was like 18 to 21, I just would have got a bullhorn and tried to outshout the guy. That was just kind of me, right? These days, probably we'd get some technology together. We'll just put up bigger speakers and get a bigger microphone, right? We'll just talk right over top of it. I was so proud when I heard what this group of young guys did to combat that, to be the light of the world on their campus. Anybody have any idea what they did? They set up a lemonade stand. And they just gave out cold drinks on a hot day. And I heard from people that were in the area. You know where all of the attention was moving towards? The lemonade stand. You're the light of the world. A simple act of service. God just wraps himself around that because that's his heart. You are the light of the world. Because of him in you, there's no darkness at all. Embrace the light. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Be united because his son has purified you from all sin. For the love of Jesus, shine. Let's pray. God, thank you for simple little 
humble little pictures, sources of light. Lord, wherever God has placed us, in an insurance office, behind the wheel of a vehicle, in a classroom, on the side of the road with a shovel in our hands. God, wherever we have been placed, may we realize today that our light matters because the light of Christ is in us and it needs to shine. So Father, may we choose to serve this week. May our life never be the same because we've embraced our role as the light of the world. And I thank you that of all the things you could have said, you've said, God is light. Lord, for those who feel like they are being crushed, I I pray that they would know that out of that pressure can come light in the darkness, medicine for the soul. I pray that we would embrace it instead of always trying to run away from it. Father, may our lives shine as a light of your example this week. And may you receive all of the glory and all of the honor because you are truly to be praised. And all God's people agreed together and said, Amen.